when we go and talk to rural communities, what they're telling us is actually that they believe in the same things that all of us believe in. They believe in affordable health care and all of the other issues that I was talking about earlier. But rural communities are voting red because Democrats are not showing up. That's Chloe Maxman, Maine's youngest state senator. You might remember her from our previous episode, Maine's Green New Deal Champion. In that episode, we told the story of Chloe and her campaign manager, Canyon Woodward. The two started out as youth climate activists and ended up running two successful campaigns and passing the nation's first statewide Green New Deal bill in Maine. Well, Chloe and Canyon have a new book out, Dirt Road Revival. It looks at a really important subject, how progressives can organize and win in rural America. In this episode, our producer, Nate Birnbaum, speaks to Chloe and Canyon about Dirt Road Revival and why the left can't give up on rural voters. I uh, am excited to to welcome Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodward back to Generation Green New Deal. Um, I wanted to to start by asking them uh, to to reintroduce themselves and, um, as they say in their book, give uh, give us a, a handshake and um, yeah, hear a little bit about Dirt Road Revival. So. Uh, Hi, Chloe. Hi, Canyon. Nice to, to speak with you again. It's good to be here with you, Nate. Thanks for having us back. It's great to be back on the show. I'm, I'm happy to, to start it off. I'm Canyon Woodward. I grew up in super rural part of, of Southern Appalachia, the very western tip of North Carolina. Met Chloe in college doing, doing fossil fuel divestment. We became best friends and, and I ended up moving up to Maine in 2018 to manage her campaign for for state house and a district that had gone Republican by 16 points on average. And we've been been on this rural politics journey ever since. And my name is Chloe Maxman. I grew up in a small town in Maine called Nobleboro and just always really loved where I where I grew up and where I'm from. And the question I've always asked myself is how can I best fight for my home? And eventually I began to understand that forces threatening my home and your home and all of our homes lead straight back to politics and the people that we elect. So in 2018 with Canyon, we ran for the state house and in 2020, we ran for the state Senate and beat a two-term Republican incumbent who was also the highest ranking Republican in Maine. And uh, now I serve in the Maine state Senate. It's amazing. Well, thank you, Senator and uh, in, in Canyon for, for being with us. Um, you both just wrote a book that was published and it is called Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Depends on It. Um, and I wanted to just also start by asking the two of you to tell us a little bit about the genesis of the project itself. Yeah, ever since Canyon and I decided to run in 2018, we had a really specific goal, which was to try and prove that young progressives can run and win in rural conservative communities that are are trending red and contributing to this political landscape right now where Donald Trump's get elected and many Donald Trump's get elected at the state level and at the local level and really pulling our country in a, in a very dangerous direction 
a lot of that trend stems from what's happening in rural America. And so we were wondering, can we do something about that in these communities that we grew up in that are part of that trend? So since day one in 2018, we have documented, we have done big, huge vision statements and goals on poster paper and hung them all over our house and just been really meticulous and thoughtful about what we were doing and how we were doing it and really trying to do everything differently. We were pretty shocked when it worked in 2018. I mean, that was our dream and our goal and it worked, but in Maine, our, our house districts are, are quite small. So we decided to scale it up and do it again in 2020 at the state Senate level, which is slightly more comparable to what exists in other states. And it worked again. So we spent so much time taking notes, writing it all down, taking voice memos. And eventually we decided that we wanted to write a book about it. It's a, it's a short book. It's more like a manual that really distills our experience and more importantly shares the lessons learned and the strategies that we use to win in our communities so that other folks can use them as well. I think it's way more than a manual. It is definitely a real book, super clear and concise and amazingly well-written after the political campaigns were over. And once you sort of started taking on the book project, what were some of like the things that uh, reinforced or changed perspectives that you had? You know, so much of what I believe in and what Canyon and I believe in is about grassroots organizing and building people power and creating a people power that is also political power that's sustainable cycle after cycle. We're in the campaign world, we're so used to just squeezing everything we can out of our list of volunteers that we have every single year. You know, all of these older folks who are writing postcards and making phone calls. And we've learned that there's lots more people who want to be to who want to get engaged, but we just haven't reached them. And I serving in office the past four years, the the profound importance of those movements being strong in rural America has just become so clear to me. We, I hear all the time about people, Democrats who live in more rural conservative communities, they are afraid to vote certain ways. They are afraid to stand up for progressive values because they don't have the base in their community. They don't have the trust and the movements that they can go back to and say, hey, this is why I voted for this. And, you know, I knocked on your door four times last year and we have a good relationship. So I think you can trust me and, and I can trust you. That doesn't exist for most of the legislators that I work with. And so, um, so instead people vote people vote the wrong way. They don't, they don't stand up and they're really afraid of what the Republicans will do when it comes election season and what they're going to put on a mailer. So there's this whole fear-based approach to legislating, which is, I mean, it's just so, it's, there's too many urgent issues these days to be motivated by fear. We have to go for the bold solutions. And so um, in my mind, the solution to that is to say, well, actually the base that you should be afraid of is your, is your, is your base, you know, your, your Democrats and your independents and your Republicans who voted for you, your movements have to be stronger than the fear that these legislators face in conservative districts. And, um, and we're not there yet, but that's why we're hoping to, to get it there. Where does that sort of like conviction and courage come from, you know, originally just to have like the vision to be like, I'm ready and, and able and should be someone who's in the government and there's no reason for me not to run. You know, I had always thought that 
I might run for office one day, but I literally, in my mind, I was like, I need a law degree, maybe even a business degree. You know, I need to be married and have a family. You know, I, I need to have everything settled before I can take on something like running for office. And I, I mean, that was the narrative in my head up until like a week before I decided to run. And I think you know, I was, I was at that time that I went down to North Carolina and I visited Canyon and we just kept talking about this vision of what does a progressive movement look like in our rural red communities? And all of a sudden it just, it just hit me that, you know, why not try? We might lose, but why not? Why not give it a go? I still regularly am like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm doing. And I yearn for the tools and the resources. But I think a lot of that is just the imposter syndrome that a lot of young people have when they go into office and realizing that our perspectives and the perspectives that we carry with us alongside us um, are so, so needed. I mean, I mean, the stuff that goes on in these in these buildings, it needs to be held accountable. And the only people I know who would even think about holding these forces accountable are young people, um, because we are facing a future on this earth that that other folks aren't. So I think it's just so it's so important. Um, I think it's also when I talk about this, I always want to acknowledge that you know, there's a lot of privilege associated with what, with what I'm doing and what we're doing. And, you know, for example, my other work is flexible, so I can schedule it around my legislative life. And I was able to knock doors all day. Um, and I'm, I'm able to do this work, even though we get paid nothing in the legislature, you know, I, I can make it work. Um, but that's not true for everyone. And so another big lesson I've learned in office is that there are so many ways to influence what is happening in our political system without actually sitting in a seat and pressing the button. And I think it's important to really explicate all of those different roles so that this is really an accessible form of change making instead of just focusing all of our energy into one person who has so much power um, and kind of we pin all of our hopes and dreams on this one person. And it's just like not a realistic it's not a realistic form of movement building. So I always want to lay that out because it's not just about the person running for office. I think that youth in particular, like Chloe mentioned, there's the urgency of we're staring down a future of, of climate catastrophe. And that hits a little bit more personally, I think, for our generation. I think there's an idealism of youth that is really powerful. And with that, a sense of imagination that is like exactly what we should be having in public offices. We are so, so sorely lacking in that. And I think that that's one of the superpowers of youth. In Maine, the districts that we were organizing in, we, we were in the oldest county by age. I also had a worry in the back of my mind of like, oh, we are two, we're two people in our mid twenties. Like how, <laughs> how are we gonna win this district? But what we found was the older generations were so, so on board and supportive and excited to see young people taking up the mantle and the courageousness of, of Chloe putting herself out there as I think a 25 year old at the time, all that to just to say, put yourself out there. You, you know, there's, there's no age too young to, to step into, into leadership. I'm struck just like listening to both of you, you know, in the book you talk about, um, you know, it's not just like a, an electoral and political necessity to like win over these rural voters and communities, but it's actually like really imperative for like the policy challenges that we face, like climate change. Like you want to have these perspectives of these rural communities in the room 
and these communities buying into your solutions and under helping you to inform what these should look like. And it seems like there's a pretty strong parallel there also between just, you know, you know, like youth um, with politics and like we, you know, always hear Democrats need to turn out the youth vote to win. But it's also more like you're saying, Canyon, much more importantly, like they should be listening to the youth about what we need to do to solve these problems and incorporating these ideas and imaginations. I really think of all of this work from from the perspective of what are my values and what are the values of my community? And, you know, I identify as a pretty progressive person, um, but sometimes progressive folks agree with conservative and Republican folks as well. And so, you know, I care about equal access and opportunity and climate justice and racial justice and all forms of social justice that those are the fights that I will fight my whole life. And I think, as a progressive, that identity is often seen as really far away from the values of rural communities. But what we found going door to door and running values-based campaigns is that actually we really aren't that far apart. We all want affordable healthcare. We all want our kids to have good schools. We all want our parents to be able to age with grace and dignity. We all want people to be debt-free. We all share the same values. We just talk about them in really, really different ways that get really polarized and jumbled when we translate them into our, our respective party policies and jargon. So what we've tried to do is, is show that there is so much common ground and that you can build really robust movements and actually create a whole lot of change based on that common ground. And I think, um, and I think that's important for our long-term political power because because that is how we are going to elect people with a value system that are going to confront the these major crises that we have these days. And, you know, sometimes those people that we elect may be Democrats. Sometimes they might not be. Sometimes they might be independents and sometimes they might even be Republicans. But what we're talking about is our values and creating, um, you know, the dream. It's a very far, far, far away vision, but creating robust um, local and state governments that are filled with people with these values or these values are the majority and we don't have to keep fighting for what is just so plainly right and wrong. And I, I think from being inside the system a little bit, that um, that's just so easy to get stuck in the differences and the divisions and, you know, like all the parties caucus in different rooms and we're all pitted against each other. And they're just those narratives of division are just really, really strong. And we're not electing people who are bringing those different perspectives into the state house. We're not electing enough of them. The math that you kind of lay out in terms of just Democrats, um, quite simply needing to be competitive in rural places in order to maintain their political power. As you were writing this book, was that something that became even more powerfully considered by the research that you were doing? As recently as um, 2009, uh, people were evenly split in terms of their partisan lean in rural America towards the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, which is which is pretty wild in the last 13, 13 years since um, a huge, huge, huge gap has opened up. And we see that at every level from the school board on up to the electoral college. Um, and from there, how that affects the Supreme Court and all across the board. And I think one thing that paints a really clear picture of that is, is looking at 
the composition of of the U.S. Senate and the fact that the 10 most populous states in the country are home to half of the population, but their cumulative 20 senators make up only a fifth of the U.S. Senate, while the other half of the country spread out through 40 smaller states elects 80 senators. So basically one half of the country gets four times the number of U.S. senators per person than the other half. And that's something that is also replicated to, to a large extent at the state level with where you see my home state in North Carolina having a Democratic governor who won the popular vote statewide, and yet we have Republican supermajorities because of the rural vote. You know, if all of your votes are coming from from populous centers and you're you're winning 90% to 10 and then losing all of these other districts by by a small margin you're just set up for failure and that's the way that our electoral system was set up to to privilege whatever part, party can have a wider geographical base basically democrats what it means is democrats are routinely leaving votes on the table while running up huge margins in, in the cities and suburbs. And the result is that we just don't win nearly, nearly the number of seats that we should, given our popular support. Another thing that you guys hit on is how the economic policies of both parties really have failed rural um, communities on both sides. And so it has started to shift more towards these social and religious and other values. So I'm, I'm curious, maybe if if you can just sort of talk about like how that the the cycle that happens there, where um, the like economic op, the lack of economic opportunity um, has sort of created these places where you know the people who would otherwise maybe help to change can't stay there and so they leave. You know, I think part of the phenomenon that we're seeing is that with so many young folks moving to the city for for better opportunity and just people in general flocking to to more populated areas for job opportunity. Um and as we're electing more Democrats, you know, kind of from on the statewide level from these cities, we're seeing that the policies coming from the Democrats are really catered towards urban and suburban environments. And they're not really addressing the challenges that rural communities are facing, which are oftentimes really, really unique. They might be the same problem, but just in like a completely different context that requires its own strategy and its own approach. So it kind of creates this positive feedback loop where the concentration of the electorate is electing people who are only serving the needs of the people that elected them, um, which kind of makes sense. That's how representative democracy works. So, and in that vacuum, you know, the Democrats have kind of, like Canyon said, just ceded all of this ground to Republicans in rural communities and just opened up all of this space for a different type of political landscape. And we've seen that in that landscape, the, the right wing, I mean, there's a whole history about this that I'm sure lots of people are interested in, but you know, um, like the really intentional rising of evangelicalism and religion in rural communities, um, Fox News and, and how rural communities get access to news and media, all of these forces have kind of intentionally encroached on rural areas and changed, changed the narrative and really, really quickly changed the politics of what's happening. Um, and so now rural communities are, are voting 
quite red. And that, that trend has has amplified so much that it actually had a huge impact on our presidency and elected someone that no one ever thought could get elected. And when you look at the exit results from exit poll results from Donald Trump's election, he got elected because of rural voters. So I think it's it's just this really complex narrative of, of kind of the Democrats taking for granted what they have, um, not spending the time, the money, the thought, the strategy in talking to rural voters and just completely focusing on their, their urban strategy. It's kind of the same thing as what we were just talking about before, which is forsaking movement building and just thinking that you can get through cycle after cycle with the same strategy. And the consequences are you don't, you don't have a movement, but um, Republicans do have a movement. They have, they have a statewide movement. If I'm just from my very limited perspective here in Maine, um, when I get flooded with emails and phone calls, it's not from Democrats. It's from the Republicans. I mean, it's it's just so interesting to see how connected they are um, and and how much of a network they have in these tiny communities. Over the past 13 years, especially, Democrats have really walked away from rural places and not invested any kind of resources in in maintaining those relationships and and building relationships and that just created this huge void where Fox News um, Trump was able to, to storm in. And um, so all of these xenophobic and, and right-wing narratives, and there's no reason why Democrats can't be in that space telling, telling a more honest story of, of um, you know, directing our, directing our blame at the, you know, top one tenth of of one percent, as opposed to, you know, immigrants and and people of color, a la Rush Limbaugh and, and Fox News. And so, the biggest, most important thing is just investing the resources to go back on the ground into into rural communities across the country, and engage in these hard conversations and relationship building in just a very simple, rudimentary, face-to-face human connection. Neither of us are in love with the Democratic Party. I mean, we have plenty of issues with how the Democrats have operated and continue to operate. I think we're, you know, what what we're seeing is that when we talk about our values around our social justice fights these days, that um, Republicans are not are not there and they're not fighting those fights. And when we go and talk to rural communities, what they're telling us is actually that they believe in the same things that all of us believe in. They believe in affordable health care and all of the other issues that I was talking about earlier. And so, um, but rural communities are voting red because Democrats are not showing up. I mean, literally we knocked on doors every day where Democrats had never knocked on that door in that voters entire voting history. And so what we found is when we show up and we have a conversation and when we're like, you know, hey, these are my values and they sound really close to your values that people are actually willing to vote Democrat, not because they're they're love the party, but because they see that these values can be reflected in a different way. Um, and I think we don't we don't need to go into how the Republican political agenda has really concentrated so much wealth and power in in a very few elite. I mean, that's their entire strategy. Um, yet rural voters are still going that way. And there's this narrative that it's like, oh, rural voters aren't voting in their best interest. And we just we talk about this in the book, how that's just such a condescending narrative that really doesn't 
um, place the blame on the Democrats for not showing up in the first place and not being able to present a compelling alternative. And so that's what, you know, that's what we're trying to do with dirt road organizing is really just have a, a kind values-based presence in rural communities when we, when we know that the Democrats aren't going to be talking with these folks because it's just not how they roll, you know, and hopefully one day they will roll that way. But in the meantime, we want to be that force that has the knowledge and expertise to really support progressive candidates and progressive campaigns, whether they be electoral or issue-based campaigns as they, as they go and organize in rural places. I'm curious as, as you've started to have the book go out into the world and have it read by people, what's something that, that has been really rewarding about sharing your story? I think it just, it feels, we, I feel like we're getting a lot of validation from other frustrated folks. You know, we, we've piloted this work and, and kind of put it to the test in Maine and Maine is, is, you know, certainly has some very deep red threads in it and definitely a lot to fight against, but we're also in a democratic trifecta right now. And we acknowledge that there are other key states. And so it's been really, it's been good to talk with folks in other states and say, you know, hear that they've had the exact same problems that we've had and face the exact same dynamics. And that this, um, there's this thing happening right now where young people are moving back to their rural communities and they're running and they need support and they need help. And so um, it's been good. To, it's been good to hear that the, that the narrative resonates. No, I totally echo that. I think the most meaningful thing is hearing from other folks who are grabbing the torch and running with it and in their communities, whether rural or otherwise, and also connecting into into more of a national network that is pushing democratic leadership in particular towards recognizing this, this gushing, gushing wound that we have um, and, and the need to, to reinvest in rural organizing. You know, I think that unfortunately we have, we have a pretty huge leadership problem and internal change within, within the party and within funding networks um, is is really critical to be able to get the resources we need to rural candidates and and groups doing rural organizing. Can you give us the rundown on release date and where people can buy it? Yeah, totally. So Dirt Road Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and What Our Future Depends on It comes out on May 10th. It's being published by the awesome folks at Beacon Press and the website for the book is dirtroadrevival.com. You can pre-order the book there or basically anywhere that you buy books. Um, and you'll be able to find information about book events and more, more info about the organization on there. Well, Canyon, Chloe, thank you both so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure to, to have you on again and just really congratulations on an amazing book and um, I'm excited to to continue um, following your journey and supporting along the way. And yeah, just uh, keep, keep up the great work. Likewise, thank you so, so much for everything you're doing. And so fun to get to chat about the book. Thanks a ton. Thank you so much, Nate. Chloe and Canyon's new book is Dirt Road Revival. 
It comes out on Tuesday, May 10th from Beacon Press, and you can order it at dirtroadrevival.com or through your local independent bookseller. That's dirtroadrevival.com. Also, if you missed our previous episode on Chloe and Canyon's story, go back to our feed and check out the episode from September titled Maine's Green New Deal Champion, which we produced in collaboration with Juliana Bradley and Georgia Wright of the Inherited Podcast. Generation Green New Deal was created by me, Sam Eilerson, and Nate Birnbaum, and we are produced by Takuna Lam Productions. This episode was edited and mixed by Noah Foley-Bining. Thanks for listening. 